Olympic Channel podcast. Imagine cycling over 18,000 kilometres, nearly 12,000 miles, virtually half the circumference of the globe, across 18 countries from Switzerland to New Zealand on a bike. It's not a midlife crisis, let's just say. It's definitely not as hard physically as you might think. That was Rebecca Wardle. My name is Ed Knowles, and this is the official Olympic Channel podcast. Each week we find for you the very best Olympians, and we ask them to go in deep about the biggest Olympic talking points. We want you to think just like an Olympian. Olympic Channel podcast. Coming up, Olympic heptathlete Rebecca Wardle is on a cycling mission like no other. We've almost met an Olympian in every country we've been to, which is very cool. Even with all the cycling and meeting Olympians along the way, Wardle thinks the road to success is more important than any goal itself. You learn more from that kind of disappointment than you do from probably success. So I think it's good being good steed in these years, especially now when we're cycling through the desert in 40 degrees. <laughs> Plus, we talk about her career, the adventures she's had so far on her journey and the people she's met along the way too. Olympic Channel Podcast. Rebecca Wardle competed at the 2008 Beijing Olympics for New Zealand as a heptathlete. For most, the Olympic Games is the biggest event of a person's life. But 10 years later, Wardle has decided to go on another incredible journey. Wardle retired from competing when she injured herself just six weeks before London 2012. She was in the form of her life, but left disappointed. The 18,000 kilometres will take about a year to complete, eventually ending up in the small town of Lake Hawea in New Zealand. She's not travelled alone. Olympic rower Emma Twigg interrupted her training for Tokyo 2020 to join Wardle up from Lausanne to Istanbul. And she also has Sarah Van Bellicom, or SVB. She has recently conquered Kilimanjaro, plus numerous marathons. So, just as they were about to leave country number 11, Uzbekistan, I gave them a call. The first question really is, why do this insane journey? But there'd been a nasty crash in Iran that resulted in both being hospitalised. So, I started off by asking SVB exactly whose fault that was. Olympic Channel Podcast. It was all my fault, to be honest. <laughs> and I've been I've been racked with guilt. Even even to this day, I still feel guilty about it. So um, we had a really nice time off our bikes exploring kind of southern Iran and then got back on eight kilometres in to the ride and it had been raining and unfortunately I um, just skidded on a bit of the road and fell down and brought Bex down with me, which is not good. Yeah, so we try and draft behind each other just because it's easier with the wind, um, which is fine. But, of course, if the person in front crashes, you're more than likely to hit them, which I did, unfortunately. Yeah, Bex hit me quite hard. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, she um, landed in a huge puddle, huge muddy puddle. <laughs> so a little bit from shock, I actually started laughing. <laughs> Poor Bex was there covered in mud. So yeah, there was a bit of blood and we ended up um, visiting four different hospitals that day just to make sure that we had the right kind of treatment. We were seeing different people who were saying different things. Um, 
and in the end, I think at about, so this happened at about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I think by 9 o'clock that evening I was getting stitched up by, very luckily, a, a knee specialist, so I had four stitches put in my knee, um, and SVB and I had uh, a collection of bandages covering other scrapes and bruises mm. over the body, so... Yeah, we tested out Iran's um, medical system, which very we can, well. We can absolutely recommend. <laughs> we, we had amazing, we were looked after so well. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. So we spent a week, um, a week recovering in a town called Gorgan, which is near the Caspian Sea. Um, SVB here was doing twice a day, three-hour physio sessions. Um, I was having IV antibiotics and daily dressing changes. And yeah. We um, it took a week out of our, our journey, and um, unfortunately, we couldn't cycle the rest of Iran. But we uh, jumped back on the bike in Turkmenistan, and been going ever since. So let's go through exactly where you've gone through for someone who has no idea as well. So you you left Lausanne in Switzerland, and then just take us through that route to where you are now. I guess the first country we visited was Italy. So we climbed the Simplon Pass out of Switzerland and into Italy with a big group of friends, which was a pretty cool way to visit our first country. Um, and then we made our way into Slovenia, down into Croatia, and then into um, Bosnia and Serbia before heading to Bulgaria. Uh, and then we crossed into Turkey, um, which is where Emma left us, unfortunately. So one of our trio was... Sent home to try and um, do some training for the Olympic Games, which is that's, yeah, a that's, good, ex- good excuse. Yeah, yeah it's not, as it goes, yeah, that's Emma Twig, the uh, Olympic <laughs> rower uh, from New Zealand as well. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah, so you had to leave her in Istanbul, right? Yeah, we left her in Istanbul, yeah. So then um, SUV and I continued on through Turkey. So we had a whole month in Turkey. To cro- it took us a month to cross, cross right through Turkey. Um, at the very end of Turkey, my parents came to visit us for about a week, which was awesome. Um, always welcoming visitors along along the way. Uh, and then from Turkey, we crossed into Iran, where we had another month. Um, and then into Turkmenistan, and now Uzbekistan, where we currently are. Emma uh, isn't the only Olympian uh, that you've met along the way. You've also, part of the plan, isn't it, is to uh, meet up with as many Olympians as possible. So who have you met? Oh, we've met a whole host of people. I think we've almost met an Olympian in every country we've been to, which is very cool. Um, we've had um, we've had biathletes in Slovenia. We had a, a guy, a cyclist, who'd cycled in the '68 Mexico Games. So this, he was like seventy in his seventies. He cycled with us for like thirty kilometers, which is awesome. Wow. Amazing, yeah. Um, wow. We've had a, a lot of rowers. Obviously, with the connection with Emma, we met a lot of rowers, rowing Olympians, especially um, in Slovenia and Croatia. Um, who else have we met? We met some uh, wrestlers from Turkmenistan um, last week. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to be meeting a, a, a boxer in Tajikistan. Actually, she won a, a, a medal, I think it was bronze in Rio. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's such an incredible part of the journey. And it's been super special to meet these people along the way. And, and a lot of the times they've hosted us for, for meals and we've got to know a little bit more about their, their culture and stuff. So it's been, it's been super cool. Well, I, I did see uh, also in, on Instagram, possibly my favourite one, is when uh, your physio is making chicken kebabs. Definitely in Iran, we were absolutely blown away um, by the hospitality and the generosity of, of the people that we met. Um, you know, people did our washing, um, uh, made us meals. People even paid for our hospital bills. 
So I was speaking to my, I'm at my mum and dad's at the moment, and my dad was like obviously asking about what's going, what's going on here and trying to explain. Uh, it's, it's these two um, girls from New Zealand, and uh, yeah, one of them's an ex-Olympian who's been the heptathlete, and they're cycling all this way, and he's like, what? Can't get his head. <laughs> his yeah. reaction uh, um, immediately was, are they okay? <laughs> It's not always necessarily a given that it's going to be safe, is it? Um, I think we've just been really aware, like um, aware of what's going on in our surroundings, um, taking up the offers of local people to, to help us along the way. We've been super fortunate in that we've had uh, in every country a contact with the National Olympic Committee, who's provided us with, um, you know, they've been helping us with places to stay, people to talk to, and at, at, at a minimum, someone we can call if, if we get into trouble. So... Um, we certainly feel uh, a lot safer than we probably would otherwise without that kind of support network, which has been which has been very cool. But there have been the odd hairy moments, yeah. which I think we've yeah, we've dealt with quite well. A few, few things we haven't told our mothers. <laughs> so I'm not sure if we should mention them on this podcast. <laughs> oh really? So yeah, what what, yeah. what what kind of things happen then? Is it is it is it is, is it safe for work? Things. Sort of 4.30 in the morning things that happen. Right. <laughs> We've just, I think um, maybe a few people haven't seen kind of Western woman cycling before, so sometimes we kind of attract some attention. Yeah. It's been yeah. interesting, actually. A lot of a lot of people, especially in Turkey and Iran, have asked us, where are the men? Yeah. As in, yeah. how come you're travelling? Like, what are you doing? This is crazy. Yeah. Who is your leader? We're like, we, we are the leaders. <laughs> Yeah. Looking at them. Looking at them. So, yeah, I think especially in those cultures, it's um, it's probably more bizarre than obviously when we were cycling through Italy. Yeah. Cyclists are, are, are the norm anyway, um, let alone women cycling. So, yeah. Can you explain a little bit about your charity and what where the, the money is going when you finally get to New Zealand? Sure. So we're um, helping to raise funds for a organisation called Ford Foundation that is basically um, – trying to give young women opportunities to play sport. So young women, uh, this is sort of secondary school between 12 and 18, say. Um, young women the opportunity to play sport, but also be leaders in their community around sort of sporting events or, um, or clubs. So it's kind of um, not just giving out cash to help them compete, but also to, they can sort of run little projects in their communities and things. So it's just, it's a bit of a wider scope. Uh, and when we were looking around for, for things to support, we thought this really fitted in with exactly what the kind of thing we wanted to support, because that was us when we were that age, um, was, you know, playing sport was a super important part of our growing up. And we thought if we can do something to help some young Kiwi woman um, by doing something crazy like we are, then that's a pretty cool thing to do. I'm going to turn to you now, Bex, specifically, if that's all right, SVP. I discovered that you went to a school with the best name of all time the Rangi Ruru Girls School, which that, to me, is just, like, sounds the most Kiwi, like, name <laughs> ever. Growing up in New Zealand is, I'm probably biased, but it's if you want to be active and play sport, it's definitely the best place to grow up. Um, so I grew up on a, on a high country sheep farm where being active was just part of your daily life. So, you know, throwing stones and getting mucky and running around, so... I think that provides a pretty good base for any kid who's who's got a lot of energy and wants to to be in, involved in sport. Um, but then, yes, at, at Rangiruru, obviously, sport was a massive part of the curriculum, um, and we were really encouraged to get into 
anything and everything. So I played basketball and volleyball and softball and did swimming and athletics and, um, yeah, pretty much did everything except rowing Um, uh, right up until I left school at at 18. So it was, yeah, it's a a good Kiwi, typical Kiwi lifestyle, I guess. (laughs) And so what what was the point when you thought, right, I'm I'm good at being at sport, which you must have been one of the, you know, that's just a given, right? What was it where you thought, right, no, I need to take this step into being elite? Um, it was probably my first or second year at university. So um, that was 1996 and the Atlanta Olympics were on. Um, and I remember watching and kind of thinking, oh, you know, this Olympic thing. Like, I remember watching since I was little, like LA 84, Seoul 88. It had always kind of captured my imagination. But I think it was Atlanta when I'd left school and I was like, if I want to go to something like the Olympics, this is where you have to sort of start start doing something a little bit more serious. Um, I'd always been a little bit frustrated playing team sports, so volleyball, basketball, all that kind of stuff at school, and um, knew I could do athletics. So my mum actually encouraged me to go and join a local club, which I did. Um, and then I competed in my first national champs in 1997, the next year and got last in the 200 metres. <laughs> um, but I was hooked. I loved it. It was it was super fun, and you were kind of the master of your own destiny. You know, the, the effort that you put in was what you got out of it. There was no referees or judges. It was just the stopwatch, which never lies. Um, and I was just kind of drawn to the purity of it. And, yeah, um, what was it? Fifteen years later, ended up in Beijing, <laughs> 2008. Um, I, I ended up swapping events. I took, took my sweet time. As my coach would say, trying to find the event that really suited me. Um, played around with 400 metres, then 400 hurdles where I competed at um, World Championships in 2003. Um, and then didn't make Athens in 2004 in that event, but actually ended up going to watch. I was lucky um, to, enough to be in Athens and happened to be in the stadium watching the heptathletes compete. And I was like, oh, you know, those girls look like they're having so much fun. Um, I'd known from kind of small club events that I could could throw a little bit. Um, so I rang my coach actually after Athens back in New Zealand. I was like, right, I'm coming back to New Zealand and I'm going to try a heptathlon. Uh, and he was he was very excited because he tried to make me do it about six years earlier and I hated it. Um, basically didn't want to run the 800 metres at the end. Uh, yeah, I went back to New Zealand um, early 2005 and uh, qualified for the Commonwealth Games the next year in 2006 in Melbourne. So that was my first big major competition in the heptathlon and then yeah had a a couple of years later was was realizing my dream in Beijing. As places go to realize a dream that stadium in particular is pretty pretty special like I don't think I've been to another stadium other than like rugby and football and things like that where there's just this crazy atmosphere like it was it's it's loud in there (laughs) it's not which is and it looks like it's from the a Chinese different crown dimension. Is crazy. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah. uh, it must have from finishing last to then making the Olympic Games. I mean, that's in that time. You must. How did that feel when you were stepping out into the bird's nest? I was a little bit overawed, to be honest. Despite all the work I'd done with sports psychologists and people around me to, you know, try and stay calm. I think. Like, I walked out the, onto the track for the first event in the heptathlon, which is 100 hurdles, and, yeah, I was freaking out a little bit. It's kind of hard to keep your, keep your emotions in check. 
Um, but the fantastic thing about a heptathlon is you have seven different events. So as each event went on, I, I got more comfortable with the stadium and, and really started to enjoy it as, a, as an Olympic experience. Um, and, uh, and performance-wise, it wasn't fantastic, purely from that, I think, that point that it was my, my first Olympic Games and it had been such a long, long journey to make that. Um, so I was really disappointed not to be able to go to London four years later and um, kind of realise the dream from a performance perspective that um, one Olympics is better than none, so I'm, I'm pretty happy. In between that 2008 and that 2012, I can see why you want to gloss over it, but actually I think that there's lots of things that happened in that, in that period, like the, the Commonwealth Games in 2010. Can you tell us about what happened then? Yeah, I pretty, I mean, by the time Beijing came around, I was 30 years old, which is pretty old in terms of being a heptathlete. Um, and my body, my body was all right, but it didn't really love what I was doing. I actually had hip surgery um, about 15 months before the Beijing Games, so I was lucky to make it um, in that respect. But then pretty much from Beijing onwards, I just I just struggled with injury for, for four years. Um, got to a point where I was super strong before Delhi, um, but then unfortunately ended up actually breaking my foot in the 200 metres, which was at the end of the first day. So I uh, was carried off the track, which wasn't much fun, and went home to New Zealand and had some screws put in my foot. Uh, and I never completed another heptathlon after that, despite trying my best. Um, again, got myself up to a point just before London where I was probably in the best shape of my life. Um, and in qualifying for the Games in a competition in Germany, tore my hamstring in the long jump, which is the third-to-last event, so... Yeah, I was actually leading the competition on track for a New Zealand record, but it all fell to pieces in the sand in some sand pit in Germany. <laughs> um, and that was the end of my career there. So, yeah, it was a bit of a rocky road after Beijing, but one I'm still proud of. Do you ever look back with, like, a frustration or do you think, like, was it even worth it? Like, what, what's your what, – how do you look back at, at that period in particular? It's funny because uh, – a lot of the, the team around me, so my coaches and kind of support crew were like, kept kind of reminding me during that period that I needed to enjoy the journey because if you don't enjoy the journey, then what's the point? So it was kind of a daily thing at training or sort of reminded to, we had a bit of fun and, you know, enjoyed doing the training and enjoyed, enjoyed the lead up. Um, because I think if you don't enjoy the journey, then the destination doesn't really kind of mean as much. And it's tough. I mean, is, is that four years wasted because you didn't get to the games? I don't think so. I think I learned. I think you learn more from that kind of disappointment than you do from probably success. So I think it's stood me in good stead in these years, especially now when we're cycling through the desert in 40 degrees. <laughs> don't take this the wrong way now. And it's always rude to start talking about people's ages. But, you know, <laughs> I had to have a look and I couldn't help but notice that there was a certain age there that... Uh, <laughs> That was it came up in December and you'd clicked into forty. As that was that a yeah. factor? <laughs> it's not a midlife crisis, let's just say. Um, was it a factor? No, I don't think so. I think this is something. If the if the timing had been right when I was thirty, I think I would have done it. But um, yeah, no, I think what's well, a good way to celebrate your fortieth year, isn't it? Sit on a bike. <laughs> Certainly <laughs> a memorable one. I think. That's I mean, it. I'm probably I'm probably incredibly fortunate. There's probably not a lot of other 40 year olds who are able to have the freedom or the, um, yeah, I guess the freedom 
freedom from whatever to be able to freedom from life, normal life, I guess, to be able to go and do an adventure like this. So I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky. As you head out now, um, how long have you got left? When do you tap out and what, how, what's the end game sort of thing? What's the plan? So for me, um, I'm trying to get Bex to China. <laughs> or she's actually getting me to China. Because um, so <laughs> I actually don't know the way. So we will spend the next month climbing some huge mountains in, in Tajikistan, uh, following the, a very famous um, Pamir Highway. So we're both really looking forward to that. Um, my only concern is the lack of hot showers that we're going to be having. <laughs> <laughs> and the frequency that we'll be camping. So really looking forward to that. And then we'll enter uh, Kyrgyzstan for how many days? About four, four or five days, yeah. Four days. And then uh, we're meeting another friend in, in Kashgar in China. And then I will cycle until my 30th birthday, which <laughs> is in October, end of October. Um, and then I'm tap out and, and yeah, wish, wish Bex all the – Luck in the world as she um, goes through China in, in winter. <laughs> People who would want to do this but maybe are making a few excuses in their heads, you know, about why they shouldn't, you know, could you do, do a sales pitch now to someone <laughs> to say why you should, uh, why, why someone should be doing it? I think the thing is, is it's, it's literally, it's definitely not as hard physically as you might think. Mm. Um, People are like, oh, you must be so fat, and ah. Oh. But I mean, we to, to start with, we go quite slowly, so it's not like we have our heart rates screaming and we're puffing all day. We can, you know, we're cycling at a pace where you can chat very easily, and um, so physically, I don't think it's as hard as as people think. It, once you once your butt's in shape, <laughs> once your butt gets <laughs> used to it. Um, but I think it, it just it just takes a little a little bit of planning around. Um, probably the most difficult part is making sure your visas line up. So that you you can get into what from one country to the next um, without any trouble. But other than that, if, as long as you can navigate and you uh, probably want to know how to change a tire. Yeah, which I tire. I still don't think I've quite nailed that. But luckily, <laughs> that's very good at changing tires. <laughs> um, and I think as long as you're up for being super flexible, just you know roll with the punches, whatever you know, sleeping on a basketball court or in a wedding hall or in the local Red Cross building or in a five-star hotel. It happens every now and then, which is nice. Um, I think if you've got a bit of a sense of, of kind of adventure and, and, um, and are quite happy to be flexible, it's honestly, it's, it's definitely not as hard as it sounds. It's just not that hard. Yeah. Olympic Channel Podcast. Amazing stuff from Rebecca and SVB. Remember, you can also listen to our other podcast with Emma Twig. It's all about finishing fourth at the Olympic Games and also has Katinka Hosso in it as well. I shall put a link in the description. You will almost certainly like that one if you like this one. So the Asian Games are already going on in Jakarta and Palembang. Olympic gold medalist Joseph Schooling said that they were his big priority this year. Singapore's Schooling, then just 21 years old, beat the all-conquering Michael Phelps to gold in the 100-metre butterfly at the Rio 2016 Olympics. It was Phelps's last race as well. There are literally loads of reasons to tune into the Asian Games, but Schooling is definitely one of them. We've got news and live coverage in many territories to enjoy that around the world. Head to olympicchannel.com to have a look. Olympic Channel Podcast.
Right then, last week's episode was all about Usain Bolt, who not only celebrated his birthday this week, but also hooked himself up with a football trial at Central Coast Mariners. Busy guy. The podcast, though, focused on the race that shook the world, his incredible performance at the 2008 Beijing Games, where he broke the world record in the 100 metres in spectacular fashion. The man himself retweeted us, but loads of other people got in touch as well. At Miss C.E. Walker tweeted, What I can't believe is that in the last 10 metres or so, he, couple letters, slowed down. I mean, imagine. That was, again, caps on, insane. We were going nuts. I also especially liked, also on Twitter, at nonexist 7616 really catchy name. He does that and he gets gold. That happened to me once and my shoe came flying off and I lost, shakes my head. I think that was in reference to Usain Bolt running with an untied shoelace. Incredible. Anyway, that one is literally the last one in the stream. So if you haven't had a chance to listen yet, go and have a look. It's only a few taps away. For a podcast recommendation this week. Now, if you've been unlucky to be anywhere near me for any length of time, This week, I have probably already told you about this amazing episode of the Tim Ferriss Show, number 228 to be exact. It's with the four-time world weightlifting champion and Olympian, Jersey Gregorek. He's got this mad system called the happy body, and he gushes about the need for flexibility before lifting weights. It's super interesting. Anyway, as ever, a five-star rating on iTunes would earn you an Olympic Channel podcast gold star. A little review with words would also get you an additional gold star. So that's two stars. The reason is that it helps other people find us. So thanks if you've already done it. Remember to subscribe for the best Olympians talking about the biggest Olympic talking points every single week. That is it for now. See you later. Think like an Olympian. Olympian.